Welcome to Season 6 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? Want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Today's episode features Dr. Richard Boyatzis. We thought he would be a great guest because of his engaging personality, career and faculty development, and his work curating a better understanding of social and emotional intelligence and leadership in organizational psychology spaces. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we're both thrilled about today's episode of the podcast. So this season, we're talking to educators, faculty developers, and, and others who write and speak about teaching practices in higher education and or sometimes organizational behavior or leadership. Our guests have authored popular texts or they might currently host popular podcasts where they're discussing trends and best practices in higher education. Um, They may come from different places in the university. We've got folks from education and psychology, business STEM, but they're all sharing teaching practices that can be applied more broadly. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Richard Boyatzis. Richard, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I was introduced to your work. So one of my colleagues here at University of Southern Maine, Liz Tereski, uh, she studied with you a bit at Case Western. And uh, while I was introduced to your work briefly as a doctoral student, she made sure <laughs> that I was introduced to your work much more holistically at uh, in our practice here at Southern Maine. In fact, your text that you wrote, see with McKee and who's the third author there? It's on the tip of my tongue. Well, he, he's talking Johnson. about the resonant leadership book it was just with Annie. Uh, primal leadership, the first in the series, right. was with Dan Goldman, and the third in the series, which was the workbook, Becoming a Resident yes. Leader, was with Annie, Annie McKee and myself and Fran Johnson. That's right. And so that's the one that we use. It is required reading in our graduate group dynamics course. And as I was sharing you just before we started recording that our, our students have a have a, a love-hate relationship with that because they say, oh my gosh, I've never worked so hard and I've never learned so much about myself. And so we're definitely going to dive into, into that a little bit. Um, before we do that, I'm curious, our audience can certainly take a look um, at your bio and learn a little bit about you online, but what are some things that maybe three things that people might not know about you from reading your bio online? My parents were immigrants from Greece. Um, my father got here just in time to be drafted and then um, for in World War II fight for the Americans. They didn't have to fight much on the Panama jungles, but after Omaha Beach, he did. Um, and I grew up in New York City. My father was a waiter for most of my life. And that ends up being important because three times, three different years at my elementary school, PS 150 in Queens, I was, um, they tried to leave me back because they thought I was cognitively slow. When you spoke with a Greek accent and I could read Greek better than I could read English, in 1950, that was considered a sign of retardation, not multiculturalism. That's one thing. Second, I'd always wanted to be in the space program uh, since I was, you know, nine and saw uh, Buck Rogers, the old kind of radio shows and all that stuff. And I, it, and it turned out, thank God, after Spundik went up and they tested everybody in the U.S. in 1957, that somebody decided I was really smart and 
especially in physics and in math. And I got into a special program, one that today we'd call AP. But in those days, because we were in a working class community, by then my father and mother had bought a little house out in East Meadow and Long Island and Nassau. And, but because it had half an Air Force base and the county jail and the county reformatory and the county park, we had a lot of money. We had my public schooling had some of the best teachers you know, within 150 miles of, of Manhattan. The net result was a group of us uh, took a whole bunch of college courses. I mean, we actually were in a special program where we were doing a lot of that. And it really helped because I know from my graduating class at East Meadow High, five of us went to MIT. And, you know, a few others went to some other trade schools, you know, like Stanford and <laughs> Princeton and things like that. But at any rate, um, so the thing that was interesting is that I, I had to kind of put myself through school between scholarship and loans and all that kind of stuff. But I ran out of money, thank God, in my junior year, because MIT got me a job doing what I was being trained to do. My, I was specializing in control systems of interplanetary vehicles. And you know, in 1966, we were doing some flights, but most of the work was preparing for a future when we had, you know, uh, uh, space stations outside of Earth orbit, Moon orbit, Mars orbit, etc. Well, almost six months of doing that at Northrop Norair in Southern California made me realize that it was really boring. Nobody from the time I was in high school noticed that even though I was really good at math and physics, and I still am a bit of a nerd, um, I was always very social. I had a whole bunch of bands. That's how I helped pay for MIT was my music work. I was in all sorts of clubs. I mean, a group of us, 15 or 20 of us are still meeting. We had a, our Zoom meeting last night, you know, once a month. From, this is from high school folk. And we were in a lot of the clubs together and things. And, you know, what was very clear was I, I was very socially driven, but nobody saw that because of the, technical stuff. So I finished my degree at MIT. I only had two courses left when I got back from Northrop, but I said, there's no way I'm going to do that. And that's when I signed up for some management because I figured, what the hell else am I going to do? I don't want to go in the restaurant business like all my relatives on this side of the Atlantic. I, I knew my music wasn't good enough for me to actually go pro. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll go into management. I took a course from Dave Kolb, who is known for experiential learning theory and learning styles and attorney law. And he, he was finishing. He actually hadn't finished his PhD at Harvard, but he was teaching at MIT. And he described his course in this um, thing where uh, people who had courses that didn't have prereqs did. And it sounded to me like utter bull. It's called organizational psychology. I couldn't think of something that was stupider. But he said two words in that introduction that made me literally run to his classroom in the basement. And that was no tests. It turns out my the entire course of my life has was twisted around the fact that I'm test phobic. I don't do well on on standardized tests. I uh, I, I freeze. I, you know I get nervous as hell and all this kind of stuff. Well, in that course, I discovered a whole new world. I discovered a field psychology where I I had never known anybody up to that point who would work. They loved what they were doing so much they'd work whether they got paid or not. Then I discovered it and he, and then I was, um, I, I took doctoral seminars even while I was finishing my undergraduate, 
But all of a sudden, I picked up a few other great mentors who I didn't realize who they were at the time. Ed Shine is one of my mentors, still is. Um, you know, the guy's 93 and he's still writing books, you know. Um, Dave McClellan at Harvard, Everett Hagen, who founded the first psychoanalytic historical society with Eric Erickson. I mean, these are people who, uh, you know, were giants in the field, but I didn't know because I was new to the field. They're but still they giants. Were, we're still, they, like, yeah, we, actually, yeah, I talked about Shine two weeks ago in my org change class. So, yeah, yeah they're, right. they're still giants. His humble inquiry stuff is just mm. really powerful. So, what happened was they convinced me to go to graduate school, to go for a doctorate, which I didn't really know. That's how little I knew about higher education. And they convinced me to go in psychology. So before I knew it, I was in the PhD program in a multidisciplinary psychology program at Harvard. And, um, and that was it. I mean, you know, from there, I was doing psychotherapy with alcoholics and drug addicts for most of the 70s. I was started the research on competencies. I, I'm seen as one of the five people who started the competency movement uh, in human resources back in 1970 with Dave McClelland. And um, when I graduated with my doctorate, Richard Hackman offered me uh, a teaching, a professor position at Yale, and I turned it down because it wasn't the position I wanted. Uh, they had one with small, focusing on small groups, and that was the one I was really prepared for because Bales was one of my key mentors. And, but uh, they had to offer it to somebody who didn't know much about small groups, but they had an affirmative action uh, goal. And in this case, they had no faculty in their large department that, who were female. So, you know, I understood, but it also meant I wasn't going to take the other position. Um, years later, he sat in my office in Boston when I was running McBurley research company and he he has feet up on my table and he said boy he called me rick in those days he said rick the smartest thing you ever did was saying no to us because it was a few years before the entire political thing at the school of management at yale just imploded but that was that was the path i was set on so i was doing the competency research on performance and all that i was working with alcoholics and you didn't ask this but the thing that got me into psychology was wondering why don't managers help their subordinates? So it was the issue of helping. The data that Dave Kolb showed me and said, do you want to work on some real data for your term paper? And I said, yes. In the spring of 1967, we began a series of pu publications that came, started coming out in 1970 that was the early forerunner of my intentional change theory. So I've basically been studying how do people help other people change uh, since 1967. And, you know, there are all sorts of dabbles about it. Like when I was working with alcoholics and drug addicts, because I'd created on the basis of work that McClellan had done, and I joined him on a new therapy program. I was training therapists in a lot of countries, but it meant I had to average like 18 days of group therapy a month, which um, is emotionally draining, let me say. Now, fortunately, I was still single at the time because I was on the road 28 days a month. But the key was when you're working with folks that are have a, a, a chemical addiction like that, you know what it is they need to do. They gotta have to get clean and sober. They have to re-enter their families. They have to find a way to work. But I was so burned out by that, by the coming to the late 70s. And I was so tired of having to spend days doing proposals to get $15,000 
to continue the work that I ended up saying, okay, let me shift my focus to leadership and management. It's multidisciplinary. It's really complex. People don't know much about it. And um, people don't nickel and dime you, you know, to get support for what you need. What a and great, that, you, you shared so uh, much. I just want to jump in real sorry, quick because you please. shared so many things that I feel like Dan and I could talk about, like the music piece I want to come back to, how, and this is something that's been a theme for almost every guest, is they didn't intentionally go to college to study leadership. They were doing something else. And then through getting involved or finding a mentor, they ended up getting pulled into the ranks of this leadership education space. And so it's wonderful like to hear your story about how you got pulled in as well. And to well, hear- let me, sorry yeah. for Andrew, but Lauren, when I was going through my PhD program, I needed money. I needed to do some form of consult. So I was doing some teaching, but I was also starting to do consulting. And a good friend of mine who took a job for AID in Ecuador handed me this beginning practice he had developed with educators. So in fact, I spent a number of years helping K through 12 teachers and headmasters and headmistresses with the Friends Council on Education, the Independent Association, as well as a few public schools, learn how to incorporate the whole student. How do we incorporate values and feelings? How do we use experiential learning? And it was from that that I realized that the leverage was the headmaster or headmistress, the principal. And if he or she had their stuff together, everybody clicked. There was magic, there was juice. And if they didn't, they just, ex they wiped people out. Th then in 1974, um, just before I started running the, the research consulting company, but I was actively, I was director of research, the feds came to us and NIE and FIPSI and said, um, we are trying to help any college, graduate school, or even uh, community college who wants to innovate in pedagogy because there are three categories of non-traditional students that are, we don't think are being helped. One were people over 21, one were women, and one were people that today we'd say people of color. Well, we became the psychometricians for any university or community college that wanted to innovate to help them figure out how do you study the outcomes. That was the beginning of the outcome assessment move. And, and that dovetailed perfectly because what we could do is to ask the question, what do you want your students to learn? So decades later, 1995, Scott Cowan and Dave Cole and I wrote a book on, on the, the steps on the journey from teaching to learning. What happens, in, a, in, a, in our case, we looked at a graduate school of management, but what happens when you flip the whole orientation from what are we teaching to what are students learning? And that's our output. That's, you know, I used to joke and say, in, in a sense, that's the retained learnings. You know, it's not. But the question is, as soon as you do that, you stop defining it in terms of knowledge categories. As we were talking about, Lauren, earlier, you start to think about the whole person. You start to think about financial and relationship stuff, and you get moved into this behavioral realm of competencies. So I, I just wanted to add that um, work within the field of education has always been a key part of it, but what becomes really noticeable, and a number of my doctoral students over the decades have continued to discover this, that if the principals develop 
emotional and social intelligence. The teachers are more engaged. You know, they don't worry about the unions. They get excited. They innovate. Uh, just like if the teachers show more emotional intelligence, we have studies from five countries, the students, you know, don't quit. They stay in school. They graduate. They get better grades. But the leadership ends up being a major leverage. Sorry, I interrupted you because I wanted no, to add those two pieces. So I'll just make a quick comment. So it's interesting that you say that, especially about K through 12 education. And so, you know, I have my leadership background, but I have, my child is in an elementary school and in Delaware, they have what are called leadership schools. And so I, wherever I go, just because of my leadership lens and looking at group dynamics, I always look at how do employees interact with each other. Right. And one of the things I've picked up on at my son's school is there it's the largest elementary school in the state of Delaware, and there's little to no turnover. I may be on the second vice principal and he's in the fourth grade. So about five years, his second vice principal. And I can only think of maybe two teachers that have left his Spanish immersion program. And when I look at their behavior, they look like they genuinely like each other. And to me, that feels good. Um, External, like when I think about the, the principal and how she communicates with us parents and, you know, and she, and how she talks to the children, I see a lot of those things, but it's interesting that when we transition from to higher education, we're, not expected to have that same care. Although students for 13 years have gotten that care. And now recently some people are starting to write about that. Um, However, it's just, it blows my mind sometimes that we work with college students and expect them to change after 13 years of that style. You know, they kind of look at us crazy. We look at them crazy because, because these two systems aren't really talking about it, but I, it, it drove me to think about do faculty members see themselves as leaders? So no. how you were doing your work in K through 12. I don't, I, they see that. I feel like they see themselves as leaders of other faculty or in the union, mm-hmm. but true leaders in no. that classroom. Right. Yeah, I, but, but leadership educators, I feel like we innately do it because of our subject, right? Sorry. Well, I'll that's stop why we so get drawn. Comment. No, no. I, but I think your, your point is right. Now, think about um, higher education. It is the only realm in which, well, I guess hospitals would be the same, but it's the realm where people get promoted into managerial positions, department chairs, associate deans, deans, provosts, presidents, for knowing more and more about less and less every year. We're in a world of specialization, and it really wasn't until NSF came in a number of years ago and started saying, why aren't more women in leadership in higher education that people started to, with the ACES grants and series, of which Case is one of the uh, participants, they started to focus on not just women and then by extension, other people that were coming from groups not represented uh, often people, well, you can't even say people of color because there's a difference between African-Americans versus Hispanics where there was still as much less and Indians um, from India. And Africans, you can add Africans because Africans and African-Americans polar opposites in a lot of cases. That's right, that's right. So one of the things that becomes clear is um, we're not socialized as professors And look, everybody, when they have a social identity as a professor, they think about research opportunities and teaching load. And every one of our institutions is tuition dependent. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Our one universities are as tuition dependent 
as community colleges. And when you, because I, my company had the benefit of doing a lot of work with the Cuyahoga Community College. When I was still living in Boston, we were working with Tri-C. And then because of my work with Kale, I got to know, you know, some of the outstanding community college systems uh, around the country. And if you ever want to pick a place where you give genuine equal access to folks because of the cost structure and the time of day it's given and all that, community colleges are, I mean, they do in the United States or I should say in North America, what technical schools do in Europe. Um, but this issue of leadership, we tend to pick the leaders from the wrong criteria. Like how does doing more um, top research and having more citations prepare you to be a better leader? It doesn't, it prepares you to be more of a nerd. And, and in my, you know, working with Tony Jack, whose um, life was neuroscience, but I've now been doing a lot of neuroscience work with him. It's very clear that these two dominant neural networks, the one that enables you to analyze things and solve problems, and the one that enables you to be open to new ideas and people, it turns out that these two networks are antagonistic. So every time you activate one, you suppress the other. So every time in, in companies, every time they emphasize financials, they inhibit people's ability to innovate. In schools, every time we emphasize tests, what a stupid way to evaluate students. We know from the psychology of learning research that tests increase people's likelihood of cramming to prep for them. And we know that the more you cram, the more your dump rate increases. So the half-life of knowledge from the required accounting course for 28-year-old MBAs in a top 20 ranked program in the United States was shown to be six and a half weeks. So, People could only produce on the final exam half of what they did earlier, six and a half weeks later. I, I suspect that's true across most of the quote-unquote courses. Wondering, Richard, then, so, you know, uh, you, you write so much about and... And I've started to hear you interweave this a bit and some of the, the examples that you're sharing about social and emotional intelligence and how it relates to, to leadership development. And you're also introducing some themes about how that may or may not manifest itself with, uh, with faculty in, in higher education. I'm curious, so with, with the types of, of students that you have in your courses and perhaps too maybe some of the consulting work that, that you've done, like how do you see that process of developing some of that social and emotional intelligence? And I guess too, bringing learners to kind of understand and, and, and observe and, and have more understanding of their own social and emotional intelligence and development, or I guess maybe said another way, like what are some strategies you use as a facilitator right. to help these individuals learn a little bit more about so social and emotional intelligence as it relates to their own leader or leadership development? The first thing I do, and I've been doing this for a number of decades, and I, because I also have do a lot of work. I was for 20 years on the faculty of Asade in Barcelona and do a lot of work with Kafuscati and Venezia and Alba and Athens and others, is I try to engage the faculty in a discussion about answering the question, what are our students learning? I mean, I had our dean, a, a fellow who was dean, a physics professor who was dean of arts and sciences for a number of years, quite successfully. I remember once we, my wife and I saw him and his wife at, um, at a concert downtown in Cleveland. And the first thing he said to my wife was, I have to tell you that for all of the hundreds, if not thousands of committees I've ever served on a case, the one that your husband ran in the mid 90s was the only one where I really had fun. <laughs> 
and the reason was I was asked to set up our outcome assessment for the whole university because it was a it was a missing thing on our accreditation. And I had people from all these different schools within the university. And I said, look, we'll get to the program issues later. Actually, we'll get to it in two months. For the next two months, we were meeting about once every two weeks. I want to just spend time asking the question, what are our students learning? And as soon as you do that, you're driven to a more holistic sense of what we want our students to have when they leave. So you start to think about what's the value added. You know, if all you're doing is throughputting people and they had these capabilities when they entered, then, you know, you're not really adding value. There's a, a kind of ethical issue going on. But as soon as you do that, Alexander Aston, Sandy Aston, published a number of very important, you know, with hundreds of thousands of uh, students outcome studies. And he was showing that what we were showing in a number of grants that we had at, at McBurr, at the research company, that the places in a university, a student's university program, undergraduate or graduate, where they learned the most number of things, including critical thinking skills, was in their social groups, their fraternities, sororities, their sports teams, their habitat for humanity clubs, you know, all of those things. Now, occasionally, universities would come along and use more sophisticated pedagogy, use projects. So you're actually talking to humans and, and using real applications, regardless of the field and how technical it is. All of a sudden, those schools and doing the outcome assessment. So a small women's college called Alverno in Milwaukee ends up being one of the country's leaders in outcome assessment. And they're so good at it because they started doing it very thoroughly in the early 70s. By the 90s, they had set up a whole building from donations to teach visiting faculty how to do outcome assessment. And they were going on tour around other countries of the world teaching this. All they were asking was the simple question, what are your students learning? And when you start to think about what you want them to learn, that's when you start to broaden it. Now, today, this is a lot easier than it was two years ago. One of the benefits of COVID, I, look, I hated online learning. I just thought, I mean, no matter what I do, what I talk about, the average age of my degree students is 44. They fly in, you know, once a month or once every few months for a few days, and then they fly home. So from 2007 to now, most of my teaching is, or work with students has been on Skype or Zoom anyway. But I, when I was running our nonprofit center for a while, I figured, okay, we had a, we have to break out of our pedagogical set. So I was able to secure a very large grant to create some online courses for Head Start directors. So I figured, okay, this. What I knew from the FIPSI NIE days in the 70s and 80s is that real innovation in higher education does not come from it. Actually, they're kind of the kiss of death. And it comes from faculty who get so excited about it that they volunteer. And I'm not saying administrators don't have a role. Of course they do. But if administrators understood that their role was to get out of the way, identify which faculty have a passion, and get out of their way, you know, kind of sponsor and champion them. You're right. It's uh, Kazar's work where she talks about faculty is one of the or the biggest yeah. change agents. And if you empower them and put them in a role where they can do that, and you're not overburdened with all these other things that don't don't 
connect to student learning outcomes and don't inc aren't incentivized. It's like you put them in those spaces to succeed, higher education can fix itself. Right. And again, it comes back to the leverage that the leadership has. Yeah. So <clears throat> what, what happened is um, Case joined Coursera in the second year of Coursera's operations. And because I had been doing this grant, um, the CIO and the president came to me and said, we'd like you to do one of the first two Coursera MOOCs for Case. Plus they, they knew both me and, and the other fellow is now co-dean of the law school. And they knew we both had um, expressive styles and we did a lot of work with, in our case, my case, executives, in his case, uh, legal systems in other countries. I did it. I, I was reluctant. And matter of fact, I didn't say yes until after the president had declared to other people that I was doing it. So I was kind of hemmed in, but I had to figure out a way to focus on emotions and relationships. I figured it out. It's through exercises. The Coursera engineers had to retool some of their stuff because they were all organized around learning accounting or finance or computer programming. And it was all problem sets. I had exercises. I had essays. I had things where people had to go out and talk to other people and write about it. Well, we launched the first one. And I remember saying to the few doctoral students helping me out, if we get 20,000 people enrolled, I'm going to feel embarrassed. If we get 40 to 60, I'll feel okay. If we get over 60, I'm checking into the university hospital. <laughs> um, and 110,000 people enrolled on the first run. I mean, we now have over a million and a half people who have taken one of my two MOOCs from so the democratizing benefit was phenomenal. I love, I love that. I, I get stuff from people all over the world, and it tend, tend to be older, who want us to keep learning. But, these... but what, what it said to me was, sorry, I'll, get, I'll try to answer your question more directly. What it said to me was, we're shortchanging pedagogy. I am now absolutely convinced that it's not the future, it's now, that if we want people to sustain more learning, to hold on to it, to have it to be sticky, whether it's learning about critical thinking or competencies or knowledge, we need to engage the whole person. We need to have action projects, action learning. We need to have them interacting with each other. Even if it's ion transfer of cellular membranes, one of my faculty colleagues flipped this classroom. I took his graduate course, one of the nerdiest courses I've ever seen in my life. And yet because he, he flipped the classroom and had everything done in terms of simulations and teams, it was exciting. It was exciting. And that means that people tended to retain more of it. We need to design our learning not around courses. We need to design it around developmental experiences. We need to use asynchronous learning because nobody should lecture live anymore. That's a waste of space and time. We need synchronous so that we can do a whole bunch of different kinds of interactions at the same time, and we need tutorial, face-to-face, -face, small group, you know, the model, the Oxbridge model, where you've got five to 12 students who are working with a faculty member and the students can't hide. Um, plus, we, we all do, I, and I've got now an fMRI study, a couple of fMRI studies showing that if people have face-to-face, -face, or I should say one-to-one -one human coaching about various things, it activates the right parts of the brain in a way that just people reflecting and writing by themselves doesn't. So what COVID did that was positive forced a hell of a lot of faculty 
into this realm of electronic mediated learning. And it's, it's too bad that they were forced into it, but what the hell? I mean, when I, given some of the faculty meetings I've had to sit through prior to that, uh, you know, and some of the dinosaurs of colleagues of mine who are eminent in their fields, but pedagogically, you know, are just out to lunch, this started to make a change. Now, well, I'll say, the Richard, negative, really of course, is the social isolation. Sorry, I hate to cut you off, but That's you said right. two really powerful things. I think the first thing was only the two. Oh my god! No, I, let me tell you, I've got a running list. So if anybody okay, wants yeah, my yeah. notes, I got a running list. But you said two things. It forced our faculty. COVID forced our faculty into electronic learning, and it's so interesting the the, the using technology and the coaching piece of it that you talked about. So. Our, we want our students to believe us and buy into what we're doing, yet the two foundational things that they've had experience with up until college and then will experience after, we don't, we are typically not experts in that place. Like I have colleagues who struggle with their use of Canvas. I even struggle a little bit, but the technology, and, and we all know technology is changing. We know it's all around us. And we're teaching students who have been immersed in it and they kind of get to us and they're a little put off because we're not as um, capable of using that space. And then we don't understand why they don't, yeah. why they're not motivated to learn, why they're not excited about being in our class. And it's just these two very different yeah. dynamics that are when, happening. When Professor Ellen Van Osten and Professor Melvin Smith, colleagues I've been doing a lot of work with over the decades, um, when we, eight years ago, we formed the coaching research group because we were doing a lot of research and somebody said, oh, you have a great coaching laboratory. So we said, okay, let's call it that. But, you know, we, we were working, we worked on the coaching MOOC and that was for us one of those, oh my God, mind blowing things we'd been doing in our graduate courses. And Ellen had been doing undergraduate courses on this emotional intelligence development thing. We had 39 longitudinal studies. We had a data set that nobody else had showing we actually dramatically improved their emotional and social intelligence, and at least in terms of one study, and it held out uh, five to seven years. So we were doing this, and we were also doing it for corporate executives, for um, government executives, for leaders in educational settings, uh, and all in different countries of the world. All of a sudden, the MOOC thing happened with my first MOOC on leadership and emotional intelligence. And I said, let's do one on coaching. And it forced us to come to grips with how do we make this jump shift to this other pedagogy? Mm. Now, I'm, I, it was so exciting for us in the creative process. I mean, it was like me watching the eight hours of the Beatles get back process. Oh, I just I mean, finished that. was fascinating. Oh, isn't it amazing? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that what we did was as good as what the Beatles did, but it reminded me of what it felt like when the three of us would come together and do this thing. Well, we created this MOOC and the design of the MOOC and the exercises we felt were so compelling after we launched it that that became the outline for the book that came out is two that, years ago. Is that the exercises of becoming a resident leader? Uh, well, it was... Some of them are replicated, but most, they were new exercises on, co it's the exercises in every chapter of helping people change. Okay. And we also have conversation guides for study groups. But what, what happened after the book came out, and it hasn't been as big of a bestseller as Primal Leadership or even Resident Leadership was, but within the helping community, first coaches, then physicians and nurses, now educators are starting to pick up the helping people change. And this thing about coaching is a part of what we all mm -hmm. do 
and we should be doing it with compassion rather than for compliance? Well, a very famous app designer approached me. I mean, several people had, but he approached me and said, I try to take authors do this stuff. Anyway, he was the guy who was head of research when they did Mindspace, which is a very popular app. So we had a long meeting two days ago because it's almost ready to launch. Going, and this supports your point, Lauren, going from what we do with adults to what we do with the MOOC felt like the jump of like checkers to chess. Well, the jump to an app that people would do on their phones, not on a pad or tablet, on their phones, that was like going from chess to go. I mean, it was this mind-boggling shift, which was very exciting, but very um, challenging for us. And I think that's where you're talking about today's folks are. They want smaller doses. They want it more convenient. And that means that it's going to be multimedia. And, you know, for any one of us who say, well, that's too much entertainment. You know, who said learning had to be dull? And what's so, wrong with engaging people's emotions? You've, you've hit it spot on. And I think that the, the other, the, like the tail end of that too is, so in, in K through 12, they've done a lot of coaching practice, just meaning the things that you expect out of a coach when you, you're working one-on-one. -on -one. They've put those systems into place right. into schools. And so a lot of the college students have had that coaching experience and expect it when they move forward. Like I, I go back to my son, he's never had an A, B, C, or D on a report card. Every year he's had demonstrated proficiencies. And so there's a whole generation of those folks that are coming through expecting that they're going to have to demonstrate their proficiency. Yeah proficiency in these spaces, not through writing a paper. Like my son, they count how many Spanish words a minute he can read. And is that matching the, the level he's on in school? And so we got a whole generation of folks coming through. I also think too, this tales to, so um, I do a little, I have a little bit of research background, I'll do a little work in generations. Baby boomers and generation Z are exactly the same in terms of their characteristics. But the primary difference I feel like is that coaching lens. They've always been coached and advised. And so they get in these spaces where they're told or talked at and they don't know what to do. And, it, and it's so interesting because you know, they're fighting the government, just like baby boomers didn't like the government. Um, they're very forward thinkers. They can work independently. They don't necessarily need teams like millennials. And so it's so interesting that, you know, the things that they're pushing for and the characteristics they bring are very much in line with kind of what we want them to do. But it's how do we get them there that that's kind of. <laughs> so many things and the, the the coaching conversation is interesting so um you, you may not i'm not sure if you have this on your radar richard there's a an organization called the collegiate leadership competition it's, it's actually based out of, out of cleveland one of the founding faculty members is at john carroll um oh. and um so we have been running this experiment i'll call it for about for about half a dozen years where we put students in teams we we develop students they're about teams of six students they go through a variety of different team building processes and exercises and activities that culminate in a used to be a live challenge against other university teams. Um, now it's it, it's a virtual challenge this year and last year because of COVID. 
one of the things that we've been doing is associating some of the, the work and some of the activities in the curriculum with some of the work of Anders Ericsson and deliberate practice and developing expertise. Right, so you have right. me thinking about this at a really, really interesting level because we use the deliberate practice model in our courses where, okay, let's practice an activity. Let's immediately go to a feedback <clears throat> conversation. I'm going to give you feedback. Yeah. Your peers are going to give you feedback. And we found through some research um, because we've been we've been doing some really intentional surveying um, and assessment of what students are learning. We just we we published a paper very recently. The coach's role is the most statistically significant factor we have in the development of these students. Yeah. And it was like it was kind of one of these things where it's like, is that a surprise or is that not a surprise? And by the way, it, is that is that Scott's work at John Carroll? Scott Allen, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott he Allen, was yeah. I, a I mentor had, of mine, and we've had him on the podcast. I've, ha I've helped. Yeah. I helped him early in his career, and we used to get together periodically. But, small world. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, no, it really is. <laughs> well, it's actually it's not that small because it has to do with where you get the contagion of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you know I I criticize tests, and I think testing, giving tests is really stupid. And I've had colleagues who've said to me, you know, like from the finance department, um, well, what do you think? You know, are you against any evaluation? I said, no, I'm not one of those people. I think evaluation is relevant. It's real life. You know, I don't think telling people that they aren't going to be graded is all that helpful um, because to some extent it kind of coddles people. I said, but let's evaluate them on the right thing. And what we want to know is when people develop some knowledge or technical skills or competencies, can they use it? So I'm all for performance assessment. Let's put them. So I, I'm gonna, just before this, I was quote unquote grading, commenting on one of the papers from one of my executive MBAs. They had to find two peers and coach them for an hour, just bringing them into the positive emotional attractor. And I gave them some tips as to the way to do it. And they write up the, essay with details about their techniques because I'm, you know, slight word changes can pull somebody from the PEA to the, the negative. And then I want them to analyze it in terms of the course concepts. And to me, this is performance assessment. You know, I'm testing whether or not you got the stuff we've been talking about in the readings and all that, but I'm doing it in a real setting. You're talking to real people that I don't control. These aren't kind of manicured cases or anything. So I, I think there's a lot of that that we, a lot of us in the professoriate are doing. And mm -hmm. I think it, it, it will become the norm in no time at all. Because in those places where it isn't, they'll go out of business. I, I was helping our school of engineering. I was serving on one of the task forces to redo the first year. Because I, you know, I remember my first month at MIT working on the navigation system for a lunar excursion module. This is September, 1964. It was really exciting. Well, they did, they did a marvelous transformation. The whole first year of engineering now is, is basically a project course. But one of the senior faculty was saying during one of our discussions that her daughter was looking at uh, various colleges and she wants to go into engineering, you know, some of the specialties. And she had just turned down MIT. And her reason was, this is the daughter's reason, they, t they lecture too much. So, I mean, thinking about that, where, where do you see this performance assessment manifesting itself in leader and leadership development 
at the college level or an executive education. I mean, we're certainly, I mean, we're, you know, our right. listeners and, and Lauren and I are more focused on higher education. And I think about, we, we're always, we're always walking this, this fine line between leadership theory and practice theory. And action practice. learning. The, the answer is action learning, but when Diana Billamoria and, um, and Lynn Singer, our provost at the time, or deputy provost, got the Big Aces grant, the first thing they did is they provided one-on-one -on -one coaching with 360s to every department chair who volunteered. And then they did it to the associate deans and then the deans. Um, and fortunately, we spent a lot of time training coaches, so we had uh, quite a cohort. But the idea was, if you really want to develop leaders, you have to have action learning where every time they meet, either in self-study groups or guided courses or whatever, they have to do an assignment. And that assignment is seeing if they can apply it. So really effective adult learning is spaced out. Action learning assignments become pivotal. But then you need not just peers and peer coaching kind of groups to process the stuff. You also need some one-on-one -on -one. coming back to the tutorial uh, or acting like a coach, not just uh, and closing that feedback feedback loop so they can go back out and practice again, which takes us right back to Kolb. <laughs> you, right. you know, I, I should offer, you know, it's interesting, Richard, that you say that about tests. Um, so right before the pandemic, I removed tests from all of my classes. So I teach a, <laughs> I teach a four, four load and I gave a test on the 2016 election night and it was a horror. It was awful. And it led me to really rethink use my use of tests. And I wasn't a good test taker. You said you weren't a great test taker. Stephen Brookfield shared that he wasn't a great test taker. And so I experimented with different things. So I added like in-class learning activities where we'd have them related to a, a module and you had to come in and demonstrate in class right, something related right. to the module. Um, I flipped my reading assignments. So instead of reading and then have them regurgitated on a test, they have a form that they have to complete. And it's, it's what terms are new? What terms did you know? What do you wanna pursue more? What do you have a question around? And, and I haven't done it yet in my teaching practice, but but the what do you have a question around? I can now respond in the comments when I'm grading it and say, okay, so you want to talk more about that, these things, and then these resources will help you dig a little bit into it. And it took some intentional practice and I'm still kind of playing around with it, but I tell my students like, you know, I I, I know there is value in tests for different classes. But in this space, it's more important for you to figure out what strategies from what we're learning work for you. And so after the readings, they do those, and then they have this assignment where they then have to, I, I say, use the concepts that you learned, like pull from those, they're called reading takeaways, pull from those takeaways and use them to assess a leadership video on YouTube. And I give them some samples for format. Use them to assess what you're seeing, because if you're interested in learning about like psychological safety, right, go find a video and compare. Lauren, do you do this as an individual set of activities or in small groups? So, you know, it's interesting right now it's individual. Um, one of the things, and some, maybe two episodes ago, we had this conversation about having them do a group resume. I almost thought about having them do a group reading. Um, we did take one article and I, and I asked them to read it in class and say, what drew you in and what kind of put you off? 
And in drawing you in, everybody went around and shared one thing. And then I said, okay, what patterns did we see? And my students took over the conversation. Okay, so here's an idea. A year and a half ago, I started a study group and professors from about six different countries are participating. Fortunately, because it's on Zoom, it's easier. And doctoral students. I started because three of my doctoral students wanted to study peer coaching in groups. A very, very fertile future. I mean, it could be the tremendous democratizing force for coaching in the world, but there was no empirical research on it, none. So we started discussing it and it started with a premise. And I will put it to both of you, to you, Dan, and you, Lauren. We wouldn't have gotten through our graduate school programs unless we had formed study groups. Most of us would not have gotten through our undergraduate and haven't learned anything unless we formed study groups. Study groups are another term for peer coaching. And right now, Maria Volkova, one of the doctoral students, is looking at this in medical schools. And a number of physicians are saying, we think we can really ramp up the amount that people are retaining by using more peer coaching. Now, in companies, they sometimes call them these days employee resource groups or affinity groups. Um, in education, we call them study groups or tutorials. But the fact is that, and, and this is what I would experiment next semester with having them form groups. Now, you have to decide whether or not you want to use trios or groups of four or five. You don't want to get too big because then you have free riders. So trio seems to be really good. But when they have these questions and they want to explore it more, if they're doing it in the context of their trio and they have the thing called the internet, there is nothing that they won't find that you know about. I mean, they'll I go way that. beyond. Yeah, I love that idea. And it takes it it takes the responsibility off of me to have to dictate everything and move them into that space where they're starting to work together to solve their own problem problems and fill in the gaps and communicate yeah. in a way that I know I and, can't communicate. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I remember in the nineties having to figure out, uh, well, it was a weird thing. I had always loved Zorro than the early movies <laughs> and the Walt Disney series in the sixties, but, or the fifties rather, but uh, you know, something came up and I was wondering whether or not that was one of these hero myths that had started in a time of deprivation in Latin America, you know, because Superman and Spider-Man, a lot of these superheroes started in the Great Depression in the, in the U.S. And I was chagrined to find out that the entire legend of Zorro was created by a screenwriter in Los Angeles in 1916. It did not have to do with deprivation or a cultural myth, but um, but I did it that I, sorry, I told you that to get to this, the way I discovered it was through Amazon. I, I started chaining through the Amazon books, the descriptions of things and going backward today, you know, people start with Wikipedia and then go from there. And I, you know, so I, in my graduate things, I allow DOIs for, or URLs as legitimate references. And if it's posed enough and they have enough energy, they'll go beyond the Wikipedia. They'll wow. go to some of the primary sources. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Now, one of my former doctoral students who's, who was at London Business School for six years and has been at, I don't know, for 10 or 15 years at uh, Alba in Athens, he's gone one step further with their team projects. He makes them do a short video, you know, like a 10-minute video. 
and he actually gives he calls it the alba oscars so they get dressed up and he shows up in his tuxedo and 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 they make a big deal out of the things but i got to tell you if you wanted them to tackle doing something they will know how to create videos so instead of just shaking parts of their body on tiktok they actually create something that demonstrates a learning and um I yeah. think there are a variety of ways like this that we can do it. And, and what you've done by getting them to deconstruct the readings with this way is marvelous. Absolutely yeah. marvelous because you're getting them to look at it differently, not just yeah. to regurgitate back the book report. Um, yeah. I have to credit my, my friend, Raphael. He works at Rutgers with sharing it. You know, you have friends you talk to and he's not in leadership, but he's in communication and he right. shared it to be adapted. Um, you know, Richard, I feel like we could talk to you forever, but I know we set some time limits on this podcast conversation um, before we got started. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much. We appreciate your time, appreciate the genuine conversation, and yeah, we'll probably thanks. put you on the return list for, for the future because, <laughs> I, I you know, we wanted to talk about so many things and just this hours is just not enough to cover them. So we'll have to invite right. you back. And I'm sorry if my answers kind of diverged from some of the kind questions you, you wanted, but thank you for not asking me what's emotional intelligence. I am so sick of that question. <laughs> you are welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Lauren. We also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod. That's L-E-A-D-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-P-O-D. And on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name and on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership and Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm.